The Unwanted Boulder, an audio documentary about Broken Circle Spiral Hill. An artwork by Robert Smithson. Narrated by musician Lee Ronaldo. Twenty-fourth of November, nineteen eighty-three. On our way to a concert in Groningen, we stopped in Emmen to see if we could find Smithson's Broken Circle, Spiral Hill. On my insistence, everyone either half-hearted or against it, not able to see the beauty of a wild goose chase through the flatlands. We drove across the barren plain this afternoon, empty fields, straight lines of trees, hogs and cows, not raining but cloudy and with Dutch mist hanging lightly everywhere. Hi, my name is Lee Ronaldo. I just read you an excerpt from my diary from the 24th of November, 1983. At that time, I was a member of the rock band Sonic Youth. You might have heard of us. Folks, brace yourselves. Hang on to something. Here's Sonic Youth. Yeah. Sonic Youth started making records and playing concerts in 1981. And by 1983, we did our first tours in Europe. In the fall of 1983, we visited Holland for the second time. And on that trip, I had the opportunity to visit the only remaining land artwork by Robert Smithson outside the US, a work called Broken Circle Spiral Hill. He created it in 1971 for the Sonsbeck Art Expo of that year in what was then an active sand quarry. Well, I'll never forget the first time that I went there. It just took my breath away. I thought I knew it. I'd seen photographs, I'd read about it, I'd seen drawings, I'd seen a film, but nothing prepared me for just how wonderful it is. This is Lisa Lefebvre. She's the executive director of Holt Smithson Foundation, based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Broken Circle Spiral Hill is an artwork. Well, in fact, it's a pair of artworks. And to me, if I'm honest, this is one of the most significant artworks of the last half century. Before we tell you more about the artist Robert Smithson, let's first dissect this artwork. So what is Broken Circle? Broken Circle consisted of a semicircular jetty, a curving peninsula made out of sand stretching out more than 100 feet into the quarry lake. It's about 12 feet wide and it rises just a few inches above the waterline. The jetty is juxtaposed by a semicircular water canal that cuts into the bank. Together, the jetty and the canal form a circle, a broken circle. What is Spiral Hill? Some 40 feet from the waterfront is a cone-shaped black hill, maybe 30 feet high. And to me, it kind of looks like a Tower of Babel. There's a spiraling path leading to the top that used to be covered with bright white sand. 
When you get to the top of the path, you have a bird's eye view of the broken circle. It was completed in 1971, and its location is really important. It's situated in a former sand mine that is cut into a terminal moraine just outside of Emmen in Drenthe in the Netherlands. Emmen, Drenthe is located in the northeast of the Netherlands, about two hours driving from Amsterdam. So to get there, you need to make a journey. It's quite a rural area, dominated by country roads, small fields, and pastures bordered by ditches and big oak trees. And when you arrive, you're on top of a hill, and you look down to a quarry lake. If it's sunny, it will be glistening. If it's rainy, you'll see the surface of the water being punctuated by raindrops. And as you look down, you'll see a vista off to the right-hand side of a small and quite curious cone-like hill. That is what you've gone to see. You take a path down a steep hill around the edge of the lake, and sometimes you'll see cows grazing there. So you have to decide, what's it going to be like? Am I brave enough to walk past the cows? They never bother you. They're just doing their own thing. They're eating their grass. I can't remember the cows. But I do know that back in 1983, we had a hard time finding the place, as night had just fallen when we reached Emmen that day. We were traveling in a van, my fellow band members Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore, Bob Burt, our sound man John, our Dutch friend Carlos. I forget who was driving, but our eyes were searching for signs along the dark road. This is what I wrote in my diary. We were told it was down a dirt road and not to get our hopes up because it was in a very deteriorated state. We drove the whole bumping length of the road in the just darkling night and came to the end without finding anything. We drove back along slower, found just a no parking sign. Then I spotted a rise of earth through the trees, which of course stands out a bit here at, in sea level land. We see there is a small break in the fence with signs saying no trespass and no dogs and no swimming. Bunch of no's. We figured this must be it. So as you walk down, you start to see the landscape rising above you. And on the edges of the horizon, you can see clumps of trees. So there's this real sense that you're in this enclosed space. And it really is quite beautiful. Now, the closer you get to Broken Circle Spiral Hill, the more your eyes start to focus on this lump, this object. And it seems really incongruous. It's just to the right hand of the lake. And when you get closer, you see it's a rock. Well, actually, no, it's not a rock. It's a boulder. During the construction of Broken Circle's jetty, a huge boulder emerged. 
It slowly slipped down from the sand cliff where it was once deposited by an enormous glacier during the second ice age, thousands of years ago. Large areas of our Earth have been frozen over many times in the past, only to melt away between freezes. These cycles are known as ice ages, but most of the lands, now known as Eurasia, Scandinavia, and North America, were covered with ice. Since then, the boulder had been covered by thick layers of sand. The great flow of defrosting ice changed the face of the Earth, leaving a trail of enormous boulders along its journey. Absolutely against Smithson's conception of the work, the giant boulder positioned itself right in the middle of the broken circle and thus became the center of the piece. In fan-shaped glaciers, the ice sheets spread. My forefathers propel them ahead. You can't push the backs of hills, but can see their spines. You catch your breath. Crashed slabs rolling still in the meltwater. And see, I stay behind, slick and veiny. You peer into the floodplains and see a concave bed. I've got character, blush, and lie still, sand it to sand. I should get up, but I've been extinguished and have solidified. Shells are being assembled, entire libraries built, training bras forcing the masses into place, and also there I am a witness. Indestructible materials are extracted here, digging back layer after layer to the headlands where I was given a place to sleep. My original intention was to move the boulder outside the circumference of Broken Circle. I was told that only the Dutch army could do such a thing. This is Robert Smithson. Well, actually, it's an actor who reads from interviews with Robert Smithson and from articles that he wrote for various leading art magazines of the time. I was haunted by the shadowy lump in the middle of my work. Like the eye of a, of a hurricane, it seemed to suggest all kinds of misfortunes. Smithson was always looking for shapes, um, forms that don't have a center. So he uh, always tried to make artworks that give you um, a sense of being disoriented. This is Anja Novak, art historian specialized in modern and contemporary art. She's a lecturer at the University of Amsterdam. And the boulder actually was giving a center to, to the work, especially to, to Broken Circle, and that he didn't want. For Smithson, the world was in a constant process of change. And perhaps this interest can most explicitly be seen in his most referenced work, Spiral Jetty. Well, his most well-known work, of course, is Spiral Jetty. Spiral Jetty is located at Roselle Point on the edge of the Great Salt Lake, a terminal saline lake in Utah. It's constructed from 6,650 tons of rock and earth gathered from the shore. That is a lot 
of material. And it's formed into a spiral that continuously changes form as nature and time take effect. For me also, Spiral Jetty was the work that introduced me and most of the art world of the time to Robert Smithson. But my first real interest in his work came after I discovered his book of writings back when I was in art school. His writings are powerful, evocative. They're tying all these different disciplines together. Smithson was deeply involved in contemporary art, but he was also bringing in science fiction and geology, anthropology and dinosaurs, and other areas such as cartography and crystallography that maybe aren't normally associated with contemporary art. Robert Smithson was a really particular artist. Everything he did, he saw as being part of his artistic production. So he made artworks, drawings, paintings, sculptures, films, videos, and he wrote, and he wrote so beautifully. He wrote on ideas, on artworks by him, on artworks by others. And his writings, they're really part of the curricula of so many art courses. So many, many art students have read Robert Smithson's writings. And why are they important? Well, they really get to artistic ideas. To me, they really show that art is a part of society, that art is useful, dangerous, wonderful, confusing, something that we all can really gain pleasure and knowledge from. The American Museum of Natural History features a remarkable exhibit of wild animal specimens mounted in settings of their native habitat. Like Robert Smithson, I was really fascinated as a kid by things like dinosaur bones and the stuff you'd see displayed in the Museum of Natural History here in New York City. Robert Smithson was born in 1938 in New Jersey in the United States. And in 1945, when he was seven years old, he drew a wall-sized dinosaur for the hallway of his school. A few years later, his family moved from Rutherford to Clifton, New Jersey. I guess around that time, I had an inclination toward being an artist. His father built a sort of suburban basement museum for young Robert to display all his fossils and shells. I really had a problem with school. I was very put off by the whole way art was taught. Smithson, in 1953, when he was still at high school, he won a scholarship to the Art Student League in New York. And he had a special dispensation to not go to school in the afternoon because he was just such a great artist. The suburbs. I started going to the Art Students League and we used to sketch each other. And we'd talk about art and go to museums. That was a very important thing for me, getting out of that kind of stifling suburban atmosphere where it was just nothing. Life in the suburbs has its good moments and others not so good. Discouraged? Disgruntled? Heck no. 
They're glad to be here. Wait a minute, something's happening. Pumped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. I had a good oral sense. I, I like to talk. I remember giving a talk, I think, in my sophomore year in high school on uh, the War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells thing. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. And I gave a talk on the proposed Guggenheim Museum. An inverted dish, a hot cross bun, a washing machine. So say some critics of the Guggenheim Cylindrical Museum just opened in New York. Conceived on the corkscrew principle, it makes a staircase as old-fashioned as gaslight. Well, Smithson found that those things that interested him didn't really coincide with school. You don't know what the word study means. You haven't the slightest idea. So he became more and more disenchanted and more and more confused. I tell you right now that unless you get over your lazy habits and come up to the standards I've set for this class, many of you will have the pleasure of repeating this course next semester. Memory like saber teeth, my mother shimmering in windproof skin on the other side of the water, my father, the animal, who went to sea, only named when he was no longer animal. Two hundred meters of ice over his feet, one floor more each time, and he got wings, and my mother too, they flew away to die out and deliver me. I remember the wind engulfed my woolly birth. In thunder and rage, I collapsed from a cliff's height in screeching breath, less strokes, but with no human ears, no one went deaf. We didn't know then that sound is saved, that I, too, had been sound. The orphan roared at last, ready to go places. Pennsylvania Turnpike, once a dream of a few far-seeing men, is now a reality. Right after World War II, we traveled across the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Once on your way, you don't have to stop a single time. Out through the Black Hills of the Badlands, through Yellowstone. When visitors first come to the park, they have a tendency to herd together. Up into the Redwood Forests. There's something written on that sign up there. I'll get out and see what it says. Then down the coast. It's a fabulous highway shooting right out over the ocean for more than a hundred miles. And then over to the Grand Canyon. With a good map, highway navigation can be very simple. It made a big impression on me. Oh, was that terrific? You can relive things from the past and dream of things yet to come. A box can become a sailing ship or a submarine beneath the sea. What would you pretend this box could be? I used to give little postcard shows. I remember I'd set up a little booth and cut a hole in it and put postcards up into the slot and show all the kids these postcards. It's really interesting. The three-dimensional color pictures are extraordinary. Boy, well, I have something to tell the fellas tomorrow. The parts that furnish the spark of life to the automobile, that make it a vital, moving thing, are the products designed, engineered, and built in the 23 manufacturing plants of the Electric Autolite Company. My parents saw art as a rather questionable occupation. Autolite gives life to the automobile. My father worked for Autolite, 
Now, I do remember some interesting things that he used to bring home, like films, where they, they had all these car parts sort of automated, you know? Like marching spark plugs and marching carburetors and that sort of thing. It's very vivid in my mind. Later, he went into real estate and finally into mortgage and uh, banking work. The good salesman helps the buyer. The measure of his success is not how many sales he makes, but how many customers he satisfies. He just never had the artistic view. Right after I got out of the Army in 1957, I, I moved to New York. This is New York, a fascinating city, an incredible city. It was a period of the beat generation. When I got back, on the road was out, and all those people were around, you know? Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, both of whom I met, and uh, Hubert Selby. I used to visit him out in Brooklyn, and we'd listen to Charlie Parker and that sort of thing. Out we jumped in the warm, mad night, hearing a wild tenor man's bawling horn across the way going, yeah, yeah, and hands clapping for the beat, and folks yelling, go, go, go. I never met Jack Kerouac. He died too young of alcohol. But I did become friends with Allen Ginsberg. I even performed with him a few times. He was an inspiration to us all, interested in everything. He was the grand old poet of New York. And we were quite friendly in the last decade of his life. He even deigned to look over and make comments on some of my pages of poetry. Sometimes I long for a shovel that, like Moses, splits all these lurking earthworks in two, someone to cling to. I'm open to it, but I still don't know if it's that or if it's my entrenched intestines that each day get heavier and quieter and advise me with a damaged voice to do things totally different for once. The artist, like a kid, collects fossils and shells, lays insects on satin beds, builds wooden shelves to lift the dead weights above the earth I should have known. Carefully at first, then swearing and ranting, he builds a circle around me, praises my post-industrial position, designs a viewing point. We both still have faith in it. Robert Smithson is one of the pioneers of land art, an art movement that developed in the late 1960s. Land art expanded the boundaries of art by the materials the artists used, sand, rocks, and concrete, and the location of their works, namely, far outside the boundaries of any museum. Besides Robert Smithson, artists like Walter D. Maria, Michael Heiser, Richard Long, Gordon Matta-Clark, and Nancy Holt, Smithson's wife and partner, were some of the key figures in the land art movement. Smithson himself didn't really like the term land art. He preferred the term earthwork. But now when we think about his work, we really cannot escape this term, land art. Land art is often understood as being a moment in art making that came into focus in the mid to late 1960s. And it was a moment when artists stepped outside of museums to make artworks that really had a relationship with the landscape, 
It could be the rural landscape. It could be the urban landscape. But it's really about embedding artwork into the surface of the planet. Smithson is seen as being one of the leading exponents of this moment of land art. I mean, having said that, he really would not have wanted to have been seen in this way. But his ideas, his work, his interviews, his dialogues, his writings really have contributed to the definition of land art. Destination, space. We stand on the threshold of a great new age of exploration. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. Come with us then and observe the views from space of the Earth and the Moon and beyond. It was also a time where the space exploration was very much into everybody's mind and, and thoughts. We choose to go to the moon. With the first moon landing in 1969, for instance. So, and especially the space travel also gave new images of the Earth. We will view this new perspective as our astronauts have viewed it. Supplied new perspectives on the planet Earth, and I think that was also something that inspired many artists to look at the planet in a different way. For a very brief moment in time, man has touched the periphery of the universe. He has seen his planet as it has never been seen before. The view from space is staggering. I think many artists also wanted to work on a very large scale. Robert Smithson was fascinated by peripheries. In fact, to him, he said that the center was boring in comparison to the edges. He always recognized the importance of understanding limits. So that could be the limits of sight, as in seeing. It could be the limits of sight, as in place. It could be the limits of knowledge, as in assumptions. When it came to place for his art, he always preferred the peripheries to the center. So for him, it was an abandoned quarry rather than a bucolic landscape. Now, by making earthworks, by pointing to the peripheries, it's not that Smithson was claiming the museum was unimportant. Rather, he wanted to expand the limits of the museum. One way of Smithson expanding the limits of the museum was by introducing a concept which he called site non-site. Very interestingly, in 1968, Smithson began to make his non-sites, artworks that brought a remote site inside the museum. I created the dialectic of site and non-site. For him, the site was the outdoor location where he would, for instance, make an earthwork like a sculptural piece or collect samples of soil and sand and other materials. So that's the site. So what's a non-site? 
the non-site might be an installation in a gallery or um, photographs, but also texts that he wrote about his artistic practice. So the site and the non-site cannot be thought separately. They are always interconnected. The outdoor location becomes an artistic site because it is referred to by a non-site. Well, Smithson would go to specific sites, for example, Mono Lake or Montclair Quarry in New Jersey, and he would collect material from that site. And he would show it within the museum, held within paired back containers. And within these containers, he would also show it beside maps and images of the site. The site becomes a site because it is framed as such by the non-site. And the non-site cannot exist without the site because it is the frame that frames the site. And the sites that Smithson was looking for were not your picture postcard grand landscapes or the bucolic scenes that he might have encountered while traveling in Europe. On the contrary. I became interested in kind of low-profile landscapes, the, the, the quarry or the, the mining area, which we call an entropic landscape, a kind of backwater or fringe area. Entropy was something Smithson became more and more preoccupied by. It's a concept from physics, from thermodynamics to be precise. Simply put, entropy is a measure of the randomness or disorder of a system. The principle says that the natural state of things is diffuse, chaotic, disordered. And with every passing moment, the universe as a whole is becoming more disordered. In general, I think entropy for Smithson uh, referred to the, to the tendency, to the inclination of organized structures to return to less organized states. Entropy means that an orderly little drop of ink will diffuse into a billion parts at the first opportunity. He once said, imagine a sandbox which is filled for one half with black sand and for the other half with white sand, and then imagine a child running around the sandbox clockwise, and the result will be um, gray sand in the end. And he said, now have the child run through the sandbox counterclockwise, and the result will be even more grayness, but um, you, it, it will not result in, in a return to the original situation of, of a box filled for one half with black sand or for one half with white sand. So entropy also meant um, that, you cannot, that you cannot turn things back into their original states. Entropy means that the air in your room will remain in the most disordered state possible. It will never gather together under your bed and leave you to suffocate. I think he, he really saw it as, um, as a creative principle which is inherent in nature but also in culture. So it is also a concept that connected natural and cultural processes. He, uh, he also linked it to creativity because only if things fall into chaos you can start imagining new orders. So it's, it is also very much a concept that has to do with the, with the dynamics of change. Smithson's fascination with entropic landscapes led him to develop this idea of artistic land reclamation. 
He saw before him projects in which artists would work together with industrialists to find new destinations for landscapes that were heavily affected by industries. In effect, he wanted to take used up portions of the landscape that had been quarried or mined and repurpose them with a new life force. So he thought that artists really could, could help to discover new ways of, um, of using those landscapes. I mean, really, his ideas were so ahead of their time. They were all about recognizing the devastating human impact on the world and memorializing it so we could learn from our human impact and perhaps, or maybe I should say, hopefully, think about a better version of possible futures. So he thought that they all should work together in order to find new solutions for these, for these sites. Solutions that would not neglect the, um, well, the industrial processes that have shaped those sites, but give new meanings to them and discover, also discover new aesthetic qualities in those landscapes. I lurk and lurk like it's a thing, hold the cabinets with ease and also the stories he tells all day long about carburetors and drive shafts and all that ugly motion. The child lets itself be swaddled, says my extinct father. And are you dating all your documents for later? I know, I'm his mood killer and his greatest victory. It seems like I'm lying on my back with my legs in the air, but this is actually the most stable position. Broken Circle Spiral Hill is, in fact, the only land reclamation piece that Smithson would make. The um, people of the uh, De Boer firm who exploited that site, they actually constructed the work, so they were actively involved in, in making it. And they did it with the kind of tools that they used um, during the industrial process. So like sand pistons um, and drag lines and things like that. But they also maintained the work over the years because they had the, the know-how and the tools to do that. Um, so in that sense, that was actually the only, the only occasion when Smithson could, could realize his idea of a productive, creative collaboration between artists, industrialists and policymakers. His untimely death prevented him from making further reclamation projects. In that sense, Broken Circle and Spiral Hill is truly unique also in his oeuvre. Robert Smithson made Broken Circle Spiral Hill as part of a group exhibition called Sonsbeck, Beyond the Pale, in 1971. Sonsbeck 71 definitely reflects the ever-changing approach of the artist to his work. This art exhibition would become legendary through its presentation of new art forms. The artists represented have chosen to make maximum use of modern building materials and working methods in realizing their high ambitions. And it took Robert Smithson about 14 days or so to make the artwork. And, and I really love this, although the invitation was to make a temporary artwork, Broken Circle Spiral Hill's life spans just over a half century. 
And I guess what attracted him at the location in Ammon, maybe the fact that it was decentered, so that it was not um, situated in the in the center of the Netherlands, maybe also the color scheme of the site uh, might have played a role. Smithson was originally trained as a painter, and I think color is actually much more important in his work than people often think. So, um, especially in uh, Well, in 1971, there was a very interesting color scheme to that site. There is this jade green lake, but there were also um, uh, different layers of, of earth in different colors that you could observe. The uh, spiral hill was made in black soil and the spiraling path was, was made with white sand. So there were many different colors that... Um, came together in a kind of very dynamic color scheme in the beginning. Robert Smithson was an intellectual artist. He was extremely well-read, and doing extensive research was very much an integral part of every new art project he undertook. Smithson was also interested in the, in the history of the Netherlands, of, of Dutch landscapes. So he heard about the big flood that devastated the southern parts of the Netherlands in 1953. The seas, lashed by a mighty wind, broke through the dikes and poured in to swamp the countryside. You could read the shape of the work also as a clear reference to the history of land reclamation in the Netherlands. Streams of refugees leave the stricken towns and villages. More than 50,000 have already been evacuated to safe areas. Behind them, they leave their homes and farms to the mercy of the waters. They leave behind, too, many friends who did not escape in that night of horror. But also the notion of flooding and how the Dutch have actually learned through the ages to not only struggle against the water, but actually to cooperate with the water in order to secure their living environment. Each day, the death row mounts. Now it stands at nearly 1,400. I think that is a notion that is still very relevant today when we face many problems with floods, but also with very dry periods. So this idea that the environment never has a fixed state, but is actually in a, in a constant process of transformation was very important to Smithson's artistic practice and is articulated by his works very strongly. Never in living memory have the Dutch suffered such a disaster. Yet they'll fight back, rebuild their shattered homes, and make this once more a prosperous land. So the site itself made him think of the danger of a flood, but probably also of the beauty of it, the, the idea that land and water intermingle and together create something new. These are all notions that he saw when he perceived the site. But on first arriving at the site and later starting to work on Broken Circle Spiral Hill by laying out his plans to the workers of the sand quarry, he could not have imagined what the place still had in store for him. Well, this boulder emerged when Smithson and the company, people who actually constructed the work, started digging into the ground. Sometimes I'm born in the yellow sand the green water, my unplanned presence, my veiny fat skin. It is the streaks of sunscreen from a body just come from the sea, a sight I've never seen, 
This man-made coastline, my rock that slowly greets my parents. The sea level drops. They might make a movie about the crash. Stop with your pretty core values and the shivering ice that every five years drifts back to the sandpit in jubilee, the grotesque game of playing dead for years to come. At the center of Broken Circle is an enormous boulder, and this boulder is really special. It's an accidental center. Now, at first, Robert Smithson was really bothered by the boulder. He wanted to move it. I mean, he really wanted to move it, and he tried to do that, but it was just too heavy and too expensive to shift. And in fact, and I really love this, while making Broken Circle Spiral Hill, he described the boulder as an interruption. He also described it as a shadow, a shadow that was impossible to escape. And he said, you cannot escape the shadow of the boulder just as the earth cannot escape the sun. It became a dark spot of exasperation, a a geological gangrene on the sandy expanse. Apprehensions of the shadowy point spread through my memory of the work. The perimeter of the intrusion magnified into a blind spot in my mind that, that blotted the circumference out. All in all, it's a cyclopean dilemma. When I first visited Broken Circle Spiral Hill, I was unaware of Smithson's frustrations with the boulder. I actually really liked that giant rock there. It's like a meteor from the skies punctuating the importance of the work. It's an accident that became the central focus around which the work weaves its force field, a validation of the universe, as it were. But Smithson didn't see it that way. He also associated it with the dolmens, which are found, can be found a lot in that area of the Netherlands. So prehistoric burial chambers, actually. So he, he did connect it to um, ideas of death. So it is, in a way, um, a very sinister presence right in the middle of Broken Circle. But on the other hand, I think especially for visitors, it is also something that you can turn to in, and, and hold on to in order to not feel so lost. Over time, Smithson realized that the boulder was fundamental to the work. When one is on the broken circle itself, at eye level, one tends to see the boulder as part of the circumference. When one is standing on the top of the spiral hill, there is a link-up of two centers. The top center is absent, while the bottom center is present, but only from that position. Neither eccentrically or concentrically, it is possible to escape the dilemma, just as the Earth cannot escape the Sun. When I return to Holland, I might bury the boulder in the center or or move it outside of the circumference, or just leave it there as um, a kind of glacial heart of darkness, a, a warning 
from the Ice Age. Smithson found it irritating. He found it an obstruction. But maybe that's something that we need to think about in our times. The things that annoy us, the things that are in the way, they're a fundamental part of being human. They're a fundamental part of our planet. We need to work with them. And I really am interested in making a link between this and the way that we deal with the climate emergency. The way that we think about all the damage that we have done. It's annoying, it's infuriating, it's unethical. And we need to work with it. I think that's one of the many lessons that Smithson teaches us. But he teaches us by asking us questions, not by telling us what to do. Broken Circle Spiral Hill was, is, and will remain an enigmatic work of art. Interpretations of the piece will continue to change over time. But maybe beyond any interpretation or projected meaning, it is the direct experience of the work that will make it unique for everyone who gets a chance to visit it. So we came and saw, or rather felt the deteriorating beauty, the end of everything, return, return, return. We speak of truths that deteriorate naturally over time, worn out by the sun and moon, the tides. Time stands still, we know, and yet time is all surrounding, a misty beaming stream in which we grope. The Unwanted Boulder, an audio documentary about Broken Circle Spiral Hill, an artwork by Robert Smithson, was narrated by Lee Ronaldo. The poem, My Rock, was written by Iduna Palman, translated and performed by Megan Garr. Tim Gunter read the fragments that were selected from Smithson's writings and interviews. This audio documentary is produced and directed by Geert van der Weetling and initiated by Anna Reinders of Land Art Contemporary and Lisa Lefevre of Holt Smithson Foundation. It is generously supported by the Dutch Mondrian Fund, Prince Bernhard Cultural Fund, Province of Drenthe and Municipality of Emmen. For more information about this documentary, visit brokencircle.nl like a circle in a spiral Like a wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning On an ever spinning reel Like a snowball down a mountain Or a cart on a balloon Like a carousel that's turning Running rings around the like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find in the windows of
postscript. Two years after the completion of Broken Circle Spiral Hill in 1971, Robert Smithson started making the earthwork Amarillo Ramp, which is located in Amarillo, Texas. At age 35, while photographing Amarillo Ramp, Smithson died in a small airplane accident, along with pilot Gail Ray Rogers and photographer Robert E. Curtin. <laughs> 